and welcome to 13, a bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeBreeze, and today I'm talking with Assistant Professor of English, Namanti Rajasingham. Professor Rajasingham's research and teaching focuses on post-colonial studies, South Asian studies, African literatures, globalization theory, Marxism, Anglophone literature, performance studies, and women's and gender studies. Her new book, Assembling Ethnicities in Neoliberal Times, Ethnographic Fictions and Sri Lanka's War, is part of the Critical Insurgency series published by Northwestern University Press. Professor Raja Singham completed her doctoral work at Rutgers University and her master's at, I'll let you say it, Jawaharlal Nehru University. Thank you. In New, New Delhi. She also teaches at Colgate in Asian Studies, LGBTQ Studies, and Women's Studies. And she recently received university grant funding for her work in progress titled A Neoliberal Peace, Post-Resistance Fictions from South Africa and Sri Lanka. <laughs> Professor Rajeshengam, welcome Hi. to 13. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, we're glad to have you here. Yes. We'll jump right into question one. Sure. So you primarily study South Asia and in particular focus much of your work on Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. I'd like to set the stage here for those unaware. So Sri Lanka is a large island off the southern coast of India. How would you describe its culture and its environment to someone who's never visited the country before? Well, you know, for, um, in the, for us in the West or those living in the West, Sri Lanka is often known as like a prime tourist spot. So people go there for its beautiful beaches and nature and sunshine. Um, but the country ha has had a long and kind of hard 30 years of conflict. Um, many people don't know about that. But uh, Sri Lanka from 1983 till about 2009 uh, was embroiled in a war between the state uh, which is controlled by a, one ethnic group or racial group, the Sinhalese, um, fighting with a minority separatist group um, called the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam. I think normally they're referred to as the LTTE or the Tamil Tigers. So I think, um, so there's these two very opposed ways of thinking of Sri Lanka. One is as this idyllic place of beauty, sun, where you go for your holidays and luxury resorts, and the other is this country uh, torn apart historically by conflict, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, and both these remain, I think, important to understand. Yeah. We'll get into that for sure. Um, so Sri Lanka has a long history of colonialism, um, having only become independent in 1948, um, and it adopted its current name in 1972. Right. What was life like for the people of Sri Lanka under colonial rule? Well, that's a... Um, so Colombo, which is where I'm from, is the capital. And that was the kind of the colonial capital of the island. Um, under the British, um, the British took control of the entire country in 1815. And the primary uh, econ economy, I guess, of the country then was tea. So you may drink a lot of uh, Ceylon tea, um, sure. and that comes from the plantations. And tea was produced under indentured labor, right? So populations uh, submitted to very hard labor conditions and plantations. Um, 
the citizens of the, or the subjects under colonialism of the country, the indigenous population had no citizenship rights, right? Mm. Um, And it's under the British, I would say, so to understand like the present conflict in Sri Lanka, it's very important to understand the history of colonialism. And I talk about that in my book too, which is that it's under the British that these categories, what are today called ethnic groups, the Sinhalese and the Tamils, were like designated and consolidated, mm. right? So it's very interesting. Scholars, have, um, when they study the history of ethnicity in, in Sri Lanka, they'll say that the term Sinhala, it used to actually refer only to the royal family. It wasn't like an ethnic or racial group. But the British um, were very important or in, invested in codifying populations mm under colonial rule, right? So they were like, who are the people of this country? What are the crops that grow here? Like the way they mapped land, uh, looked at like monuments and restored them, they also categorized people. So I would say it's important to understand the, the history of colonialism, to understand why present day ethnic differences exist. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So post-colonialism, the Sri Lankan government fought this 26-year civil war with the separatist group. And, mm-hmm. and you had said that, you know, they fall under many different names. I think, you know, po- popularly, Tamil Tigers, right? right. Um, that's 83 to 2009. Yeah. So who were the Tamil Tigers and what, what exactly were they looking for? Right. So um, when independence was achieved in 1947, the state was controlled by the Sinhalese, right? They were the dominant ethnic group. And for up to like the late 70s, there were various attempts by um, minorities, the the Tamils who are a minority, they're about 20% of the population. And they're concentrated in the north and east of the country. Though in Colombo, for example, there are many Tamils and they're spread in other areas too. So for till about the late 1970s, um, Tamils faced increasing discrimination but there were these attempts to coexist within one state system, right? So there were attacks on minorities. For example, in the 1970s, the government of Sri Lanka said, oh, we should restrict minority entrance to universities, mm. right? Uh, because our rural Sinhalese ethnic pe- villages should have higher entry and Tamils, there are too many Tamils in universities. Hmm. So it's a very strange thing. Suddenly minorities are not being allowed access to universities in the way they could before, right? Hmm. Or in 1958, the state made Sinhala, the language of the dominant group, the national language. So suddenly you had Tamils who couldn't get jobs in the state sector, right? Um, so there were all these uh, like forms of discrimination and there were attempts till the late 1970s to work through those. But in 1983, there was a massive kind of what is called a pogrom or riot against minorities. It was concentrated in the capital, Colombo, but it happened throughout the country. And hundreds and hundreds of Tamils were attacked, some killed, their property destroyed. Um, and that was the beginning of the war. And after that... I mean, the sage was set for that, but that was the spark uh, that led to the militant group, the Tamil Tigers, saying, look, we can't live 
with the Sinhalese anymore. They're too racist. Mm. And they demanded a separate state in the north and east of the country where there are lots of Tamils concentrated, right? So they said, we want our own country and we're going to fight for it. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the beginning of the conflict. Um, it continued, it was very bloody. And the Tamil Tigers, which started as a revolutionary group, did not continue to be that revolutionary. Um, they were quite harsh and um, towards their own populations at times. Um, but in 2009, the war ended with the defeat of the Tamil Tigers, right? Um, they did not succeed uh, in forming a separate state. They were defeated by the Sri Lankan government. Mm. And that was defeat through like fighting, like physical? Violent yeah. warfare. I mean, the statistics are something like 40 to 70,000 Tamil civilians were murdered wow. in the process of over a million people in camps. Yeah, it was a very bloody end of war, mm. yeah. Your new book, uh, Assembling Ethnicities in Neoliberal Times, Ethnographic Fictions and Sri Lanka's War. Um, bef so before we get into that work a little bit, I, I want you to explain what defines neoliberal times and maybe give some examples of ethnographic fiction. Sure. Thank you for the question. Sure. So when we think neoliberalism, um, I think in the U.S. we can think about what happens with Ronald Reagan, right? The dismantling of what we, what was there before, kind of the welfare state that FDR brought into being post-World War II, right? To end kind of a depression, a certain forms of welfare or a certain understanding that certain things ha were, had to be protected from the market. So education, healthcare, uh, etc. So Reagan starts the project of undoing that kind of contract, that social contract. And so neoliberalism is that process of dismantling the welfare state mm -hmm. and this doctrine that believes that free markets can answer all social problems, that the state has no role to play in protecting populations, but that markets can resolve all issues. Mm -hmm. So that's neoliberalism. And I would say since the late 1970s, it has become the dominant economic model um, in the world. Uh, and I think it has proven to be quite devastating for many, many nation states and peoples. Hmm. Uh, oh, and ethnographic fictions. Yes. yes, my second term. So um, ethnographic fictions I use in my book because um, I want to think about how, you know, when we think fiction, we think it's the opposite, actually, of ethnography, because ethnography is about, you know, doing field work or carrying out interviews to document right. accurately social reality. Right. Fiction is normally freed of that. Like, it's about playfulness, not being held accountable to truth. Um, but I found in my research that often writers who were writing about conflict and loss and political violence felt very compelled to document social realities in their fictions, wow. right? Mm -hmm. So I look, for example, in one of my chapters as, at this writer, Shobha Shakti, and he writes a novel called Gorilla. And as a minority writer, I think it he plays with language and it is fiction, but he includes a lot of documentary facts because I think for him, if he doesn't document it in his fiction, 
it won't be documented. And during the war, there was massive censorship too. So for example, I grew up in Colombo, the capital in the South. The war that was happening in the North and the East was never reported. There was heavy censorship. The wow. newspaper never told us anything. You know, I only found out as an adult, actually, when I left Sri Lanka. I was away, and I was like, oh, all this stuff that I n grew never knew when I was growing up, right? So I think ethnographic fiction is this, this desire for writers to document facts, to leave a record, to bear witness to the violence, but also then to use fiction and creativity and symbols and metaphors to like try and make the reader think about like the use uselessness of violence uh, if global capitalism or neoliberalism is a good kind of force. So you're using fiction and playing with facts, but you're also invested in documenting. Mm -hmm. So that's the form. Yeah. So also in that book, you argue that the the bloody war that, that occurred with the Tamil Tigers should be understood as structured and animated by the forces of global capitalism. Right. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So uh, dominant scholarship on um, Sri Lanka tends to think of the war as, you know, a racial conflict. Sure. And sure, the Sri Lankan state, the majority ethnic groups... The Sinhalese are racist often and deeply invested in kind of uh, saying that the Sinhalese are the dominant group in this country belongs just to them, right? Um, but I think that we have to understand how neoliberalism, global capitalism, the dismantling of like the welfare state has impacted racial tensions, right? Right. Um, I could give you a quick example, maybe. Sure. And I can give you an example also um, from the US after. In Sri Lanka, for example, you know, we have these um, what are called export processing zones or free trade zones, which is where, like, you know, if you check your clothes, um, made in China, made in Guatemala, made in Sri Lanka, uh, these are made in sweatshops um, where workers you know, largely a female workforce labors to stitch these garments for export. So I actually followed a theater group in one of these zones of workers. And they were, you know, I, I found that these workers were so radical. They understood they were being exploited, that they were being paid pennies for clothes that were sold at $50, but their pay for a month was 150 bucks. you know? They understood that. They also understood kind of, sexism that functioned in these zones, like the way women were exploited specifically. But I was very um, surprised when I spent time there to find that they never talked about the racism or the war or how m other minorities were being impacted. And then I realized, oh, it's because these zones were constructed to exclude Tamils, right? So the state is at war. The state says, we need cheap labor. We need to earn foreign income to pay for this war, too. So the state created these labor zones that were also mono-ethnic zones, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So my argument in that chapter is that workers were produced as really Sinhalese workers and to be patriotic towards the state, right? So here's this example of neoliberal zones of labor which were also ethnic zones, oh. right? Mm -hmm. And global capitalists, the companies and the corporations there were fine with that. They were like, look, if you don't want Tamils working in these zones, we don't care. Mm. 
what we want is cheap labor, right? right? So there's ways in which then uh, global capitalism, in this instance at least, um, enters Sri Lanka to work with a racist state that needs foreign exchange and money, but also a working class that won't challenge it. So if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. yeah so and we can think of this in terms of the US and kind of the rise of, I would say, intense racism post the Reagan era, right? I mean, uh, the dismantling of welfare, um, the the ways in which, you know, the working classes jobs have gone overseas the lack of employment opportunities, like low-wage work that's available, how that has created like racist tensions in a white working class, right? Mm -hmm. Who are often told, well, it's the immigrants who are causing problems for you. If they weren't here, you would have jobs, mm -hmm. right? So the way in which, for example, politicians will use race and ethnicity to, to deflect from what's going on in terms of um, labor concerns, right? Yeah. Earlier this year, you gave a presentation at a conference titled Changing Latitudes, Theaters of Resistance, North and South, with participants from South Africa, Sri Lanka, and the U.S. Uh -huh. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. You know, that was a conference organized by my colleague, Christian Ducombe, in theater, in theater studies. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful conference, and it's... It was my beginning to think about uh, my work on South Africa and Sri Lanka comparatively. Mm. So, he, you know, this uh, question about South Africa and that conference and my own research kind of connects with my work very beautifully because, you know, South Africa, for example, 1994, apartheid ended, right? Mm -hmm. And we all remember that day when Nelson Mandela became president and we were like, hurrah. But this summer, I went to um, South Africa for research. And you'll find that that euphoria about the end of apartheid is over. And what you find is that there is an ongoing kind of continuation of apartheid-like structures. So the white populations live in extremely gated communities. There's a small black middle class uh, that's joined that population who also live in gated communities, but a large majority of the black population still live in the same conditions that they lived in before, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm kind of exploring um, the ways in which, even when there are these massive attempts to dismantle racist structures, how they continue and how global capitalism can make attempts to decolonize difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was kind of part of what that conference was yeah, about, too. Yeah. So you also uh, received major grant funding from Colgate for your work in progress right now. Titled... That was where I went. Yep. Oh, so, yes. That was the project I started. So yeah. th that you started it there? Yes. Uh, so the beginning of my research was this trip this summer uh, to South Africa to begin that kind of post-apartheid how have things not changed? How have things changed? Well, that, to kind of explore that. So the question is, yeah. what are the parallels between post-apartheid South Africa and post-Civil War Sri Lanka? Well, um, the questions are like, I think um, that at one level in post-apartheid, because it's told as a success story, mm. 
of Mandela becoming president, apartheid ending, um, that we expect a very different narrative from the one when we think about Sri Lanka. Because the Sri Lankan war ended with the minorities being destroyed, um, the, a racist state kind of winning. But what was ironic is that when I went to South Africa this summer, and my research kind of has shown that there's strange and stark parallels of ongoing what I what scholars have called racial capitalism, right? That capitalism um, influences the ongoing racialization of groups or does not allow us to decolonize or deracialize. Um, so what I when I was in South Africa, as I just mentioned, what I noticed was the ongoing um, inequalities that are largely mapped through race, right? The, a large black poor population, the white population that's still uh, extremely wealthy, still has most of the land, did not have to give up much, even though apartheid ended. So I found like the, the parallels between the two places very similar and stark, uh, even though the ends of the conflict were so different. So different. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, wow. yeah. So one of the ways you conduct your research is through the study of popular rural festivals Female workers theater, yes. novels of ethnic on ethnic war, theaters of trauma and violence, and protest art and literature. What do you look for in these works, and how do they help inform your research? In the different kinds of sites and texts that I study, yeah. um, and particularly like theater, I'm I'm curious about how theater helps inform your work. Yeah, you know, I think there's something really important about theater that. Um, we need to hold on to that, you know, a novel won't give you, for example, or even when you work on cultural festivals, uh, there's something about performance that's very important because it puts certain kinds of bodies on stage in a place or in within a space and asks you to think about embodied experiences, right? Um, so, for example, when you see a body of a mother mourning or grieving the loss of a son on stage and the audience is there physically like in, intimately uh, experiencing that moment of loss and grief there's something that's very different in that kind of exchange between bodies on stage and the and the audience that's watching i think that's that's important that a text can't give you that um, so i'm very very um, invested in thinking about um, theater and performance and so again when i was in south africa this summer i spent um, a lot of time at the historic market theater and this was an interracial theater space that became famous during apartheid because they kept performing anti-apartheid theater and the state couldn't shut them down because they were so popular. So it was very wonderful to go back and see the kinds of wonderful new work that uh, the market is doing now and the ways in which kind of black bodies uh, are put on stage and perform kind of issues of the post-apartheid South African state. Mm. And in my book, too, Assembling Ethnicities, I talk about the ways in which theater and uh, bodies on stage influence like our understandings and can create radical empathy. Mm. Um, and I think that's very important. What 
what is the biggest story to come out of Sri Lanka in the past, say, five, ten years that hasn't been covered in the U.S. press? So if people weren't kind of keeping track of what's going on in Sri Lanka, like, what do you wish people knew? Um, is there is there any big... Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, the biggest story that did come out was the Easter bombings, right? Mm-hmm. And that became right. spectacular, and it was all over news because all these churches were attacked. Um, uh, of course, you know, news circuits function in a way that you see the spectacular moment repeated over and over, but of course there's no commentary on how life is now for for the populations. And so that would be, I think, important to understand the kind of ongoing fallout of that moment. Mm. Um, but I want to turn to something else that's really important that I think often um, that's often ignored. Sri Lanka is one of the most vulnerable countries affected by climate change. And I think that story is never told. Uh, because this, the island and even the state and the tourism industry is so invested in selling post-war Sri Lanka as a tourist destination, that you don't talk about the ways in which there's constant, every year there's severe flooding and landslides and large parts of the population that are displaced or the way in which forests are being cleared, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's impacting the environment. Um, And I think that story of um, Sri Lanka's vulnerability along with so many other island nations, right, uh, to climate change, I think is never told because it's not like this spectacular event like a hurricane right. and the island is Slowly. completely, right, devastated. But it's every year that kind of slow, uh, slow violence, right, that's impacting the country through and climate change. Mm. I think that's a really important story to remember. You were also part of a sanctuary coalition that organized events around immigrant rights at Colgate from 2017 to 2018. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that work. Sure. Uh, That was a group of us that organized faculty, um, me, uh, Professor Suzanne Spring, Ana Rios, Sarah Wider, Kizia Page. We kind of met in the post-Trump election era because we were concerned about what would happen as, uh, you know, Trump's anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim kind of rhetoric was ramped up and there was talk about walls and building a wall across the U.S.-Mexico border. And we were worried, one, for um, students within campus who may be vulnerable. We have a number of students who are either undocumented or have parents who are undocumented. Mm. So while they may be U.S. citizens, they're often very anxious and stressed about, like, a father or a mother who could be deported at any time. So we really wanted to create a kind of a consciousness on campus about these issues and make it visible and uh, to break this illusion that that stuff is out there happening, say, New York City or in along the border, but it doesn't matter at Colgate because we're all, like, protected. Right. And to kind of... And so one of the events that I remember quite as quite important was we brought in uh, farm workers who worked in the upstate area, and they are undocumented. But they're working in farms, and because they're isolated, too... Like, in a city, you have a number of them, and there are all these organizations... Sure. Um, but sometimes in in rural areas, you can feel more isolated. So, you know, there were some farm workers, and the workers um, coalition, 
Shannon Syracuse came, the Worker Center, and they kind of talked about their organization and activism. And we were, you know, trying to say to our students, it's here too. It's, and you can get involved in this work. Syracuse isn't far. And there are ways to break out of kind of the COVID bubble and work with communities in the area. So, yeah. You teach a course titled Searching for Home in South Asia. The course description reads in part, Students critically examine the different representations of South Asia from the colonial period to the present moment. The course begins by examining classical texts that were revived during British colonialism, moves to exploring colonial representation of countries in the region, and concludes by discussing contemporary post-colonial texts. How do the texts from the colonial period differ from those in the post-colonial era? Well, I think um, I don't typically choose very kind of like bad colonial texts. You know what I mean? Like, oh, racist texts. I'm not interested in, you know, that we know already. Um, I'm interested in thinking also about like, you know, writers who were critical of empire, but were nonetheless still caught within certain ways and belief systems, right? Um, So I'm teaching this course right now, so it's right here. (laughs) Um, And for example, I began the course by teaching Ian Forrester's A Passage to India. And Forrester, you know, was a radical leftist of his time, a gay man who had to hide his homosexuality because there were anti-sodomy laws in place in England. And he belonged to the Bloomsbury group, you know, with Virginia Woolf, Leonard Woolf. They were really progressive. Um, But the novel is still kind of also struggling with its own mode of decolonization, right? Like it uh, has certain moments when it's quite sexist towards even British women. Uh, It has moments when Indian women aren't even ever represented. Um, so I ask these complicated questions. Can an anti-colonial novel still have its limits? Uh, when we discussed this novel, we talked about kind of um, uh, orientalist, exotic representations of India within the novel, even though Forrester is so anti-colonial. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of stuff I do when I do colonial fiction. Of course, the, the post-colonial fiction that I do is really involved partially sometimes in responding back to colonial fiction, like undoing some of these like Orientalist exotic imagery, mm-hmm. like spiritual India, like what is that, right? So kind of dismantling that. But also like post-colonial writers, I think are really concerned with present pressing concerns, right? Issues of caste in India, the ethnic war in Sri Lanka, um, Uh, globalization and its devastations, climate issues. Um, So I'm interested also in thinking the present ways in which writers engage with social issues, even as sometimes they're also kind of undoing some of those colonial impressions. Mm. So both, yeah. So you've also taught, of course, uh, Core India. Yes. Which is part of the Communities and Identities section of Colgate's core curriculum. So how do you approach that course, and what do you hope students take away from the class? I know that um, most of our professors here teach the core courses a little differently. Um, so I'd be just curious about your... Sure. Um, I love teaching that course. Uh, it's a requirement, and sometimes, of course, students come 
because it's a requirement, they're like, oh, my God, we got to do this. We don't want to do it, but we're here. But um, my, I try to frame, you know, India is a, is a massive place. Its history is long. It's geographically varied. It's linguistically varied. So my lens into this space is really through uh, the feminist movement in India. And I really track the women's movement and the kinds of issues they've t- taken on as a way of uh, entering into this space, right? Um, and I think that course, uh, I think, is most productive because my students, especially their freshmen and sophomores, these are their first years in college, they come in thinking, oh, poor oppressed Indian women, like we're so advanced in the U.S. and these third world women are really backwards or oppressed. And I think the course dismantles that, right? Because they get access to the women's movement in India and it's very dynamic. I mean, it's the largest women's movement in the world. It's also varied and it has militant feminists who've taken on every issue, right? Um, So I think by taking them through the women's movement and the way feminists have dealt with caste, environmental issues, minorities, et cetera, et cetera, I think um, our students learn then that, oh, one, Indian women aren't backward or oppressed. They don't need like Western people, like they don't need charity or us to save them. They also learn that, oh, there are many comparative points so, for example, when the Me Too movement was in its peak, when I, when I taught this course a couple of years ago, we discussed how the Me Too movement was happening in India while it was also happening in the U.S. And the students were able to see these comparative spaces, right, mm-hmm. of collaboration and solidarity. So I try to kind of do that work um, and through that explore India. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, and I think, in the end, students are like, oh, right. This is a course we kind of had to do, but we kind of enjoyed it as well. Yeah. yeah. We're at question 13. <laughs> and this last question is by my intern, Kate Norton, who was also a student in your core India class. Oh, wonderful. She said you had her class read two versions of the Ramayana. One was a classic version, and one was illustration-based with a feminist spin called Sita's Ramayana. Can you tell the audience about the Ramayana and also about the importance of challenging narratives in our histories and why it's crucial for students to question them by exploring different perspectives? Sure. Thank you for that wonderful question. Uh, So we do the typical Ramayana, which is a modern version, um, actually, but it's so patriarchal. It's a narrative of men conquering land claiming women. And Sita is this passive woman who needs to be rescued by Ram. And the uh, Ravana, who is the enemy, is who's defeated at the end, is really the lower caste, dark-skinned man, right? So it's a very typical, actually, story of colo- like conquest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we do that critically. But then I ask, you know, what would this story be if we had it actually in Sita's voice and her resistance to it. And it's a beautiful graphic novel that I love teaching because she's like, it's a very different version. And it ends differently with her refusing his rescue. He's her saying, you know, I don't want to be with you. I'm going to be in the forest and I had nothing to do with you. So I think, you know, it's about, um, it's a, it's a, an attempt to understand narratives we're given 
um, to critically examine them, to think also how, you know, as a literary scholar, the how language functions is really important. How is language used? What is the language of conquest and masculinity and patriarchy that's deployed very subtly? And if you don't pay attention, you don't even notice it, right? Um, so trying to pay attention to language and stories and history and understanding that it's not some objective truth, but it's a certain perspective that's constructed. And so exposing students to alternative perspectives, right? And to always question the story that we're given and ask questions about why is this the story you were given? How is this a fair story? Are there other voices and other ways to understand this story? So kind of exposing them to these multiple perspectives. Yeah. That was 13. Perfect. I want to thank you for joining us today, Professor. And also special thanks to Colgate student Kate Norton, a member of the class of 2020 who helped with some of the research for this episode. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast and let us know how we're doing. Email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number, with your thoughts or ideas. And let us know if you have any questions you'd like to have answered. I'm sure we can find someone to help out. Have a wonderful week and keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.